Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Rachel Wolf, and I will be your host today. I am a clinical pharmacy specialist in perioperative and surgical critical care at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Deborah Wagner, a clinical professor of pharmacy and clinical professor of anesthesiology at Michigan Medicine in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as well as Dr. Glenn Murphy, an anesthesiologist at Advocate Illinois Masonic Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. We are all faculty for an educational initiative titled Breaking Down Barriers to Achieve Safe and Effective Moderate and Deep Neuromuscular Blockade and Reversal in the Perioperative Setting that is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash NMB reversal forward slash. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. So, Dr. Murphy, surveys indicate that many anesthesia clinicians do not monitor nor appropriately reverse neuromuscular blockade. Why do you think anesthesia clinicians have been so reluctant to adopt evidence-based neuromuscular management practices today? That's a great question, and it's fascinating to me why there seems to be this disconnect between what we know has been published in the evidence and what people really do in practice. If you look at the data that's been published over the last 30 to 40 years, clearly shows that quantitative monitoring reduces the risk of residual block and complications associated with residual block. Similarly, I think particularly in the last decade, there have been a number of studies that show that failure to reverse your patients uh, at the end of the case can lead to a number of significant adverse outcomes such as post-operative pulmonary complications. But then if you look at surveys of what anesthesiologists are actually doing, it's very different. In the United States, probably only about 20% of anesthesiologists are using quantitative monitoring. And similarly, about 40%, 30 to 40% of anesthesiologists are not routinely reversing neuromuscular blockade. And the question is why, and we really don't have an answer to this. You know, there is a study that suggests that Clinicians are overconfident in their knowledge and in a bit what they think is their ability to manage neuromuscular uh, blockade. And also, I think a lot of clinicians think that postoperative residual block is a rare event. There have been over 100 studies showing that approximately anywhere from 30 to 50% of patients get to the PACU with a residual block. But in those surveys, when they ask how often it happens, clinicians typically think 1% to 5% of the time. So it's hard to change the way people do things. And I think one of the real important ways to get that done is through practice guidelines. If you look at a number of countries around the world, they have practice guidelines recommending quantitative monitoring and recommending that neuromuscular blockade always be reversed. What does the United States say? Uh, Basically, only thing the ASA says is that we should have the availability of a peripheral nerve stimulator. Well, fortunately, right now, the ASA has a a task force together who are putting together guidelines related to neuromuscular blockade. So I'm hoping within the next year, the United States may have something better in this regards. 
Well, that is definitely something that we're all looking forward to. So Dr. Wagner, as pharmacists, you know that we often refer to guidelines to support our recommendations. So as Dr. Murphy, societies like the American Society of Anesthesiology and anesthetists and have been slow to really develop guidelines around neuromuscular blockade management. So will guidelines actually help us improve the management of neuromuscular blockade? Well, Rachel, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think we always struggle as pharmacists uh, distinguishing between policy and guideline. And oftentimes guidelines may not be as routinely followed as something that might be policy. Um, I think if we look back uh, in terms of monitoring neuromuscular blockade, uh, in 2016, the United Kingdom and Ireland are really focused on unintended paralysis and also awareness at extubation. Those recommendations coming out from uh, those countries were that at minimal, a peripheral nerve stimulator was mandatory uh, for all patients recovering from a neuromuscular blockade. Those guidelines are currently under revision. Hopefully they'll come out soon and align with what the ASA will be recommending strongly. In addition, in 2020, the French Society actually looked at eight uh, different questions, two of which, one was monitoring, is it necessary? And two, strategies to both prevent and treat a residual neuromuscular blockade. And looking at both of those two items out of the eight, both of those were really uh, with strong agreement that monitoring should be done throughout an entire surgical case and that quantitative monitoring is really recommended for diagnosing residual neuromuscular blockade and making sure that a train of four uh, greater than or equal to 0.9 is, is achieved. So I think that really we, we still struggle. I know uh, looking at data, even uh, you know whether or not guidelines are followed, but I think there is strong evidence to support uh, the value of having guidelines. I certainly agree. And Dr. Murphy, so we, we know, as Deb had mentioned, that the French and, and just evidence in general really places a preference on quantitative neuromuscular monitoring over that of qualitative monitoring. So which quantitative monitoring uh, devices are available in the United States? What are their advantages? What are their disadvantages? And why are anesthesia clinicians not picking up on using these more often? That's another good question. Just to clarify, there are two types of monitoring. We have the qualitative, which is just the peripheral nerve stimulator. We stimulate a nerve and we look at the muscular response to that. Now, that's what most anesthesiologists in the United States are using. Then the quantitative monitoring devices are devices that you place in a patient and actually gives you a number. And we really want to get back to a 90.9 or 90% recovery before we extubate patients in the operating room. We've got good data to support that practice. Well, there have been probably a dozen editorials in our journals saying we should be using quantitative monitoring. We've heard these guidelines that are recommending it too. Why haven't we been doing it? Well, what we've traditionally had is only two monitors. One was called the TOF watch, and this was an accelerography device, which measured acceleration and converted that to a trade and four ratio. When it was released, everybody thought it would be used by everybody, but the problem was it was extremely hard to use. It, it, there was a learning curve to using it. It took 10 to 15 minutes to set up, and it was just too much trouble for clinicians, so they didn't use it. And then there's a, a module that plugs into the GE machine, the NMT module, which has something called kinemiography and electromyography, which you can use often. And again, those, those were set up in a way it wasn't easy for clinicians to use. So it's never caught on because it hasn't been easy to use. You know, for 
For a busy anesthesiologist, it should be easy to use as a pulse oximeter. Well, fortunately, the FDA has approved a, a couple new devices that I think are, will be much more easy to use and hopefully will get greater acceptance for clinicians. There's uh, one type is uh, a 3D acceleration transducer. Sometimes when you stimulate the thumb, the thumb may use, move in different directions. And with a TOF watch, you'd get goofy numbers. And that's why a lot of people didn't use it. You wouldn't get repeatable numbers. But these 3D devices, one of them that's available is called the Tetragraph, which we did a study with. No matter how the thumb moves, it'll give you a pretty accurate data. And we did a study showing that on one arm, we put the, 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 the TOF watch and went through all the elaborate setup. And the other one, we put the Tetragraph and we just pushed the button and turned it on and gives us a number and basically showed that it worked very well. So the Tetragraph is easy to put on. You push one number and it gives you, it gives you a, a value. The main disadvantage of this technology is you have to have the arm out. Some has to move free, freely. In a lot of surgery, the arms are tucked, so that's a, a, a bit of a problem. The other technology that's been FDA approved um, is EMG technology. You measure the electrical activity of the mu muscle, and there's two devices that are approved, the twitch view and the tetragraph. And what these devices involve, you put a strip of electrodes on the hand, you plug it in, you push a number, and it gives you a value. Very easy to use. The two big advantages of this technology are one is that it's the most accurate when compared to the mechanomography, which is a gold standard. Uh, the second is you can tuck the arm. So I'm, I'm hoping with, with these new easy to use technologies, more clinicians will use it. The main disadvantage of, the, of a device like the Tetragraph is you have to buy that strip of electrodes and we know, all know how we're under financial pressure. So what happens with this? I think we have to wait and see, but hopefully uh, I, I think, you know, particularly with so many societies coming out with guidelines, more people will start using quantitative monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we have experienced those same disadvantages of these particular quantitative monitoring devices at our institution, uh, particularly the reliability, um, the user friendliness of them, and certainly um, cost can certainly be an issue as well. Uh, Dr. Wagner, do you happen to have any um, experience with these devices or any decisions at your institution that we that you guys have taken? Well, it's interesting. We actually thought about moving to quantitative monitoring a year or so ago and had done some work with the TOF watch as well. And actually kind of, you know, there's really lack of, of agreement when you look at the TOF watch compared to a TOF count. Uh, there was only about 56% agreement. We, at the time, decided that as an institution for us, being fairly large, that the cost was prohibitive at the time uh, for us to move into quantitative monitoring. And so currently we are still just using a peripheral nerve stimulator uh, for our monitoring. So given that then Dr. Wagner, it's important as we kind of already talked about to for our anesthesia clinicians to monitor. And some clinicians are certainly monitoring in the OR, but they oftentimes are not consistently documenting the results of their monitoring in the medical record. So as many of us are trying to do medication use evaluations, how do you think that that culture and anesthesia practice is really impacting the results of our institutional MUEs? Well, I think it's really has a significant impact. Um, when I've looked at the data at Michigan, both in pediatrics and adults, in thousands and thousands of records, um, the lack of documentation of train of four count is significant. This really becomes important when 
we have set up internal algorithms for the appropriate use of both Zugamidex and neostigmine uh, based on the twitch count, as well as obviously patient risk factors. But um, it's very hard for us to tell if a patient had two or four twitches was either the dose appropriate or was the appropriate drug given based on our algorithm for treatment. And so I find that I would say when I really looked at our data pretty closely that uh, if we had over 50% of the uh, train of four documented, uh, we were doing pretty well. So it, people are being monitored. We know they're using uh, the peripheral nerve stimulators, but there's no forcing function in the electronic anesthesia record uh, to actually document that train of four. So I think it's really something pharmacists, when they're de doing DUEs, have to be really cognizant of. Uh, and really do a deeper dive because it's very hard to sort out whether or not uh, algorithms are being followed appropriately if you don't have the data behind it. Very similar to uh, having supplemental oxygen applied in patients in the PACU. Oftentimes it's not documented, but maybe a sign of some residual neuromuscular blockade. So yes, I would agree. We, there are some issues there we need to address as a whole. Yeah, certainly we have experienced a lot of um, omissions within our intraoperative and perioperative documentation in general. So I think that being aware of those omissions can help uh, pharmacists not make inappropriate conclusions to some of their MUEs and trying to really actually even advocate for more for, in, for better practices within the perioperative space. And documentation. So throughout this ASHP learning series, uh, we certainly have emphasized the importance on neuromuscular monitoring and complete neuromuscular blockade reversal in patients at high risk for residual neuromuscular blockade. So among those high-risk patients are those that are obese. So Dr. Murphy, can you comment on why it is so important to avoid residual neuromuscular blockade in this population? It's interesting. If you look at the data, it's pretty clear that patients who are morbidly obese are increased risk for residual block, and they're also increased risk for the complications related to residual neuromuscular blockade. And this isn't surprising if you understand the physiology of, of, of what morbid obesity does to the body uh, and the impairments it causes. If you look at residual block, residual block will make each of those impairments worse. So what, may, what residual block may do to someone who is healthy and young and lean, um, it, those effects would be much more significant in someone who's morbidly obese. For example, patients who are morbidly obese have impaired pharyngeal function. If you do EMG studies, though, you find the pharyngeal function baseline, it does not work well. They also know from awake volunteer studies, if you partially paralyze patients, small degrees of residual block will impair pharyngeal function. And that can lead to uh, an increased risk of airway obstruction, which is much higher in the morbidly obese patient. Uh, morbidly obese patients have impaired uh, upper and lower esophageal sphincter tone, uh, which can increase the risk for aspiration. And again, these, in these awake volunteer studies, they've shown that very small degrees of residual block impair for uh, for, uh, esophageal sphincter tone. So again, that may increase the risk for aspiration. Particularly when you pair that with, we talked about this impaired pharyngeal function is associated with impaired airway protection reflexes, which again is pr present at baseline in patients with um, morbid obesity. But we also know that very small degrees of residual block can result in 
further impairment of these airway protective reflexes and an increased risk of aspiration. We also know that patients who are morbidly obese can't take a vital capacity breath because of the fat loading. They can't take these deep breaths that are so important after surgery. But they've also done some interesting studies where they take patients when they get to the recovery room, they look whether they have residual block or not and have them perform pulmonary function tests. And they've shown in these studies that patients who have small degrees of residual block cannot perform these uh, vital capacity breaths very well. So you can understand the patient who comes and basically has is unable to take a vital capacity breath and you leave them with a residual block, that can basically predispose the patient to not being able to breathe deeply, developing atelectasis, which can lead to pneumonia. You know, so you can understand why all the, these risk factors that a morbidly obese patient has predisposes them, even without residual block, to postoperative pulmonary complications. You can understand why if they have residual block, why that may significantly increase your risk. So this is one of the patient populations I think we have to be most careful about managing neuromuscular blockade. Absolutely. So I think one of the things is that, you know, we have to make sure that our patients are reversed completely from residual block to prevent that. So Dr. Wagner, is there any guidance on dosing reversal agents in our obese population? Well, you know, Rachel, I think this is a challenge across all spectrums, uh, both Pediatric obesity and adult obesity is really uh, something we're fraught with. One, folks knowing whether a drug should be based on actual body weight or ideal body weight. I think there's oftentimes a lack of knowledge with respect to individual agents. There have been multiple papers that have been published that look at both either over or under dosing uh, based on the category that the patient falls in for weight. I think that you know we know for a fact there have been several studies that have looked at morbid obesity, uh, both with dosing of neostigmine and also zugamidex. In neostigmine and obese patients uh, with BMIs between 30 and 40, uh, there's been comparative dosing studies between 30, 40, and 50 mics per kilo dosing. The lower doses really are not effective, uh, so you really need to be in that 40 to 50 mic per kilo dose. However, we have to keep in mind the ceiling effect with neostigmine that we really don't want to be going above five milligrams. There's only so much acetylcholine to go around. Uh, when we look at uh, Zugamidex, there was, there's been studies pro and con looking at actual body weight, uh, but the most recent study uh, by Mostler uh, and colleagues actually looked at the kinetic study uh, relative to actual body weight versus ideal body weight and still supports really actual body weight dosing for zygamidex in morbid obesity, uh, regardless of the depth of block. There was another paper in, I think, 2018 that actually looked at both moderate and deep block with zygamidex reversal based on ideal body weight and found that respectively, there was a 40% and a 23% number of patients in each moderate and deep block that needed a second dose of Zygamidex. So we really don't wanna be doing that and having to go into doing a second dose. So current recommendations really still strongly support really dosing on actual body weight. There is some discussion, a paper that came out in August by Deming uh, that actually looked at using what is called a corrected body weight. Corrected body weight is something that was used to try and do uh, some cost containment strategies with Zygamidex in countries where they perhaps can't afford uh, the financial impact. 
Uh, what that really does is that takes the ideal body weight times a percentage or adds a percent of about 40% onto the ideal to make it closer to actual, but not totally actual. And those studies have actually shown effectiveness as well as using actual, and they were able to use a reduced dose. So I think there's still more coming on that. And really, when you, you talk about it, their doses were reduced from over 500 uh, per patient to about 370 some per patient. But in the grand scheme of things, you're still going to have waste. So if you're using a 5 ml vial, it doesn't really matter if you're giving you know 500 or you're giving 377. So I think there's a lot of things internally too, which we're working on at Michigan relative to dose rounding, because if you can work within these constraints uh, with these morbidly obese populations, maybe we can uh, get into using a package size that's closer to that corrected body weight, but not in excess. So I think we the there's still a lot of controversy, but the bottom line right now is really to stick with using the actual body weight when uh, using dosing. Yeah, all excellent insights. And as we've talked about throughout this uh, learning series is it's just really at the importance of monitoring, knowing if we've reached full recovery and then um, really accurate dosing. Um, and as, like you said, it appears that actual body weight dosing for C-gamma-X is certainly one way that we can try to avoid as much residual neuromuscular blockade as, as possible. But even Dr. Wagner, I just love hearing your insights related to dosing. So taking this one step further, what about dosing in patients with severe renal dysfunction? Um, and even, uh, so currently we know that Sugamidex is not approved for use in patients with creatinine clearances less than 30. And that's primarily because, or that is because they were excluded from phase two and three clinical trials. Um, so in, in this situation, should we always use neostigmine, um, even if we have someone that's at the end of the case and they actually have moderate blockade? Uh, we certainly know neostigmine cannot reverse deep blockade. Um, so do we use neostigmine in that, that scenario, or is there enough evidence to actually support the use of Sudamidex in patients with creatinine clearances less than 30? So I think, you know, initially we know that uh, it's not recommended for creatinine clearances less than 30. Uh, however, at the time, there wasn't really a lot of data supporting uh, the renal uh, effects with dosing of Zugamidex. I think it's important to know the two key concerns really are the questions in renal failure were, uh, one, would, because the drug and complex with ROC and VEC are eliminated renally, would renal failure go or contribute to a prolonged half-life uh, leading to displacement of the neuromuscular blocker, which could cause reparalysis. I think that was one concern. Uh, the second major concern, I think, was really the potential for anaphylaxis uh, if there were free zugamidex still remaining. Because we know as the creatinine clearance changes, so once you're less than 50, that half-life goes up to about four hours. Once you're less than 30, uh, it increases even significantly after that. However, there was a very large study recently, retrospective, uh, in over 125,000 general anesthesia patients, of which 26,000 plus had uh, Zugamidex, and 158 of those had end-stage renal disease, some actually requiring renal transplant and some actually just having renal failure. 
of those patients, when they looked at the cohort, there were no uh, instances of reintubation in any of those patients, nor any adverse drug events seen. And of note, 18% of those patients had actually gotten NEO first and were inadequately reversed and had to get subsequent doses of Zugamidex. So I think that really the concern and potential uh, for anaphylaxis has not been seen in renal failure. Uh, the drug has been shown to be very linear in kinetics. You might see a slight uh, increase in the reversal time from an average of a normal renal function of about two minutes to three minutes. Uh, but I think the, the kinetic studies are out there right now are really showing no issue uh, with renal failure and the administration of Zugaminex. So uh, at Michigan, we still say if a creatinine less than 30 or renal failure, high risk, suggested use of neostigmine, but we don't prohibit the use of Zugaminex in those patients. Right, we do as well. It's it's really that assessment of the risk versus the benefit and ensuring our anesthesia attending is involved in those decisions and, and uh, making sure that we make the best decision for our patients um, at the time. So I think the last population that I'd like to cover during this podcast is really that of the elderly population. So Dr. Murphy, can you comment on why this population is at elevated risk for adverse drug reactions, including residual neuromuscular blockade? And there are two patient populations I primarily worry about the most with residual block. One is the morbidly obese, and the second is the elderly. And again, like the morbidly obese, we know the elderly are at increased risk for res residual block and complications associated with residual block. Um, it's not surprising they have a higher risk of residual block. When you give a dose of, for example, rocuronium to a patient with uh, uh, who is elderly, uh, there's less muscle mass and they're less nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, you get a much more pronounced effect. And they've shown when you give subsequent redoses, the drug will last longer and longer. Also, there's decreased metabolism because of aging. As we age, we lose renal function, we lose liver function with aging. So there's decreased metabolism in drugs. So it's not surprising to have a higher risk of residual block. And because there, you lose physiologic effect of all your organs with aging, it's not surprising that they're in high, higher risk of complications. We did a, a, a study to look at this. We looked at 150 younger patients between the ages of 18 and 50 and 150 older patients who were 70 to 90. And then what we basically did is we looked when they got to the PACU, we looked whether they had residual block or not. And then we very carefully followed these patients from the time the endotracheal tube came out to the time they were discharged from the hospital for complications, primarily respiratory. What we found was that the patients who were elderly had twice the risk of residual block than the younger patients. It was 30% in younger patients versus close to 60% in the elderly patient population. And then when we looked at all these complications, um, they were much higher in the elderly patient population, which isn't surprising. But when we took that elderly patient population, we looked at those with residual block and those without residual block. The elderly patients with residual block had a higher risk of hypoxemic events, airway obstruction, prolonged PACU and hospital length of stay. They had a number of unpleasant symptoms of muscle weakness that, that persisted for hours after surgery. And they almost had an increased risk of po postoperative pulmonary complications. The P, uh, our p-value was P.02. So it just didn't quite reach statistical significance because our study wasn't powered to look at that. But almost all the bad stuff that can happen to a patient in the postoperative period, it happened in a higher frequency in the elderly patients with residual block compared to those without residual block. And otherwise the two groups are very similar. So again, I think it illustrates that 
any of our patients who have limited physiologic reserve, if we leave them with residual block, they're going to get into trouble. So we have to much more carefully manage uh, that partic those particular patient populations. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, really the key concepts um, that you guys highlighted today is that we need to be able to um, be on the lookout for our patients having residual neuromuscular block after receiving those uh, neuromuscular blockers within the intraoperative setting. And then we do that by monitoring and ensuring that we have good monitoring practices, good documentation practices, and then also just being on lookout for those patients who are at risk of having that residual neuromuscular block. So those that are elderly, those are uh, morbidly obese, or at least two populations, and even those with renal dysfunction are certainly uh, patients that we should be very cautious with our use of reversal agents and uh, neuromuscular blockers. So um, I certainly that's, I think, all the time that we have today. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Wagner and Dr. Murphy for joining us. And uh, thank everyone for tuning into this session of Pharmacy Hot Topics. Certainly don't forget to check out the initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash NMB reversal forward slash for more information on neuromuscular blockade and reversal. We hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official. <laughs>